Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. A number of years ago, they were building a house in our neighborhood. I say our neighborhood, it was actually maybe a mile away from our house, but it was on my regular jogging exercise route, so it kind of felt like our neighborhood. I loved the look of the house. I loved its geographical location, the lot where it's located. The lot looked at, overlooked the wash toward the town of Highland in our area of the world. Beautiful view of the mountains, the orange groves around it. I thought, if I was building a house, this is the lot I would like. And then I watched as the construction went up. As it began to take shape, I started to really look, look at and really like the look of the house. So when it got to that point, I, I used to stop on my jog, usually on Sundays when no one was working, no one was around, and walk through the house. Had a large living space. I walked up the stairs to the second floor, walked out onto this large open balcony. I thought, what a great place to look at the mountains, to take in the aroma of the orange groves when the blossoms are in season. It was a wonderful place. I remember one day uh, the contractor came by and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to be in trouble here, but nothing was said and I went my way. I liked it so much, in fact, that I took my wife and kids there on an occasion or two. You know, that day the contractor came by and, and I left. Something curious happened. I finished my jog, got home, took a shower, ate breakfast, and had a really good day with my family. It's kind of curious, isn't it? Nobody followed me. Nobody went home and got guns and parked their truck in the way so that I couldn't get by. Nobody shot me. It's curious. I'm keenly aware that the same cannot be said for many among us. Dearly loved people among us. There are colleagues at work, our neighbors at home, our friends in our personal lives. They have a very different experience of such things. Much like Ahmad Arbery, back in Georgia recently, whose life ended over an incident just like that. It makes me keenly aware that while much has changed, not enough has changed makes me keenly aware that we haven't reached the day that Dr. King spoke about when he said, I have a dream that my four children will be raised in a country where they will be judged on the content of the character that they have, not the color of their skin. It makes me realize that for those of us who belong to Jesus, that the words of Paul still have a lot of work to do. When he wrote to the Galatians and said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. A lot of work still to do along those lines, aren't there? Because people find 
that there are those moments when the bottom falls out of their lives, when the walls collapse, and they're not sure what they have left. Life does not turn out the way they had hoped. In fact, it could be there's the death because of a gunshot, or there's death because of COVID, or there's the death of marriage, or there's the death of hope. It could be that the structure just collapses, the walls collapse, and then we're end up, we end up asking, what do we do now? So it's because of that very reason that we're in a series of sermons right now entitled simply, When? When? That's the title of our series. When life doesn't turn out the way you think it should, then what? So last week we dealt with foundations. When the foundations beneath our feet shake, rattle, and roll. When the bottom falls out, then what? And we saw that the psalmist says what we do is we pray. We devote ourselves to deep, persistent prayer. Today now, we come to the issue of walls. When the walls collapse, then what? When the structure that we had thought would protect us and define us, when it collapses, then what do we do? Well, for an answer to our question, I want to return to the city of Jerusalem, to the city of modern-day Jerusalem, but also to the city of ancient Jerusalem. So in the city of modern-day Jerusalem, there is something called the Israel Museum, and the Israel Museum has an amazing topographical map of the ancient city of Jerusalem. I've had the wonderful privilege of standing and gazing at that map on different occasions, trying to take in what it would have been like back in that day and time. I want to show you three pictures that I took while there. So the first picture that will appear on the screen is a picture kind of standing back just a little bit from the map itself. So you see there in front of you the city of Jerusalem. Now admittedly, this has a little bit of a pasted-together nature. It has some of the old city and then it has some of the city and the temple specifically, as rebuilt and refined and, and redone by Herod. So there you have the city. You can see how the temple and its grounds dominate the landscape. Down on the lower right-hand side is the old city. You can see how the walls define its parameters. There's the old city of Jerusalem. Now the next picture I want to look at is specifically of the temple and its grounds. Now remember, this is Herod's temple. It would have been an enlargement, a refinement of what Solomon's temple would have been. But look at those grounds. Just consider how it dominates the landscape. There on the left-hand side of the temple grounds, you have the long structure with the reddish roof. That is more than likely the place where Jesus cast the money changers and the sellers out of the temple grounds. And then over on the right-hand side, toward the back, you have another structure, large structure. That was the Antonia Fortress. It was there, Josephus tells us, that the Roman cohort stayed. They could overlook the temple and keep order from that place. In fact, it was likely there that a man named Pilate tried a man named Jesus and had him stand before the crowd and said, Behold the man. So there are the temple and its grounds. The third picture I'd like to show you 
is simply of the walls of Jerusalem. So take a look at the walls. You see immediately that the walls not only define the city and its boundaries, they protect the city. Those walls must have felt impregnable. Nobody can get through here. Our entire nation, its identity, its future, depends on those walls. So with that in mind, we're going to ask today, when the walls collapse, then what? I want to take you to a story of something that happened in that world that was so important, so seminal, and so traumatic that it's recorded not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in the biblical account. 2 Kings 25, Ezekiel 24, Jeremiah 52, and the passage we consider today, Jeremiah 39. So I've turned to Jeremiah 39. Let me set a little bit of the context. Even covenantal relationships have boundaries. They have limits. And that's what's happened in this story. The covenantal relationship God has shared with His people has come to excruciating pain. The people have been consistently, persistently, insistently in rebellion against God. No matter how many prophets have preached, no matter how many preachers have wept, no matter how many tears the prophet Jeremiah has shed, there has been no lasting repentance, no lasting humbling of heart or turning back to God. None of that. And so the time has come. The time to pay the piper, to settle the debt, to face the music. The Babylonians are camped outside the city gates and they are waiting for their chance to destroy the city. The only thing that stands between them and their goal, the only thing protecting the identity of ancient Judaism and its religion, are walls. Those walls we just saw in the picture, thick and strong. That's where we are. We begin Jeremiah 39. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 and verses 8 to 11. Here's what Jeremiah says. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of King Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Sherezer of Samgar, Nebosar Sechem, a chief officer, Nergal Sherezer, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. Now down to verse 8. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, left behind in the land of Judah some of the people, the poor people, who owned nothing. And at that time, he gave them vineyards and fields." Total destruction. 
an annihilation of the walls of the city. I want to read to you something that may give us a sense of just how important those walls were. This comes from the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, there are 15 Psalms. They're often called the Songs of Ascent or the Psalms of Ascent. 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, that the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem would sing as they arrived at Mount Zion, as they climbed the steps to the temple grounds, they would sing these songs. I want you to listen to Psalm 122. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation to get a sense of exactly how vital the city of Jerusalem was, the temple was, the walls that protected Mount Zion were. So this is Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now here we are, standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. All the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage there. They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord as the law requires of Israel. Here stand the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. Pray for peace in Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. Don't you get a sense of how vital that city was for the identity of the people of God? And did you catch those two lines in verse 3 and verse 7? Your seamless walls cannot be breached. May there be peace within your walls. Make no mistake about it. The very identity of ancient Judaism depended on what happened within those walls. Their past was contained in those walls. Their present was given life by what was within those walls. Their future depended upon the continued existence of that structure boundaried by those walls. What did the psalm say? You heard it there. Your seamless walls cannot be breached. And then Jeremiah 39. When the walls collapse... Then what? I want to read to you the words of Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman. It'll kind of give us a feel, a flavor for what happened in those kinds of sieges that we read about here in Jeremiah 39. Longman writes, An ancient siege essentially cut a city off from its necessary supplies. All the people, including those in surrounding agricultural villages, would seek refuge behind the walls of the city. While the walls of Jerusalem provided significant security, a siege would leave its inhabitants with limited food and water. While the population would weaken, the attacking army would work at trying to breach the walls. Ancient warfare strategy attests going over walls by ladders, picking out stones so the wall would collapse, and digging under the walls. The means is not specified in this case, but the text does say that it took the Babylonian army one and a half years to break through the wall. 
once the wall was breached, that was the end of the story for the Judean cause. The text here does not even narrate the resistance, if any, that the Babylonians encountered once they entered the city. The next verse simply remarks that the leading officials of the Babylonian army who were present took seats in the middle gate. In essence, their position in the gate indicates that they now controlled and ran the city. Did you hear that sentence Longman writes? Once the wall was breached, he says. That was the end of the story for the Judean cause. <laughs> you remember Psalm 122? Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. And they are breached. And they fall. They collapse, and nothing but destruction is left in their place. Now, please understand, this was not just the fall of an ancient city. This wasn't just the collapse of well-built walls. This was a compromising of the entire system of faith, of religion, of ancient Judaism, and of its future. What were they to do now? This is what Jeremiah had been preaching. But the people and the king turned a deaf ear and in, in, in addition to that, persecuted him because of what he had said. And now the walls lay strewn about with nothing but homeless poor left in the land and the people taken into captivity. So the question, when the walls collapse, then what? As I stand in my mind's eye, surveying the scene of catastrophic, cataclysmic, catastrophe that once was the city of Jerusalem. I also have to think about what surrounds us in our day and time. In a pre-COVID-19 world, as well as in the pandemic we currently face, many walls have collapsed. There are many things we need as a people, as a society, as a church. Walls have collapsed. What about a just society, such as that needed so desperately by Ahmad Arbery and many others? That wall is not in good shape. What about a robust economy? giving people the confidence to work and to live, giving them jobs by which to provide for themselves. Wall is collapsing. What about a health care system that, that can care for our needs, especially during a time when our health is so compromised? Questions loom. It seems on every hand, everywhere we look, there's uncertainty in the walls, in the structure. Walls are interesting things, aren't they? 
Walls define boundaries. Walls can protect. Walls can give us a sense of identity. Walls can give us great gratitude for the fact that we can live behind them, or they can create great sorrow and sadness and pain if we're pushed to the outside of them. Walls can do wonderful things. Walls can do terrible things. Walls. But especially in our interest today, walls provide and protect structure. And the walls have collapsed. You know, the church, the Christian church, has a structure. In fact, the Christian church has had a very defined structure. In fact, my own church, the church I love, the Seventh-day Adventist church, is an extremely structured organization. One wonders, is that the best or the worst? Someone once said that Christianity had a way of beginning in the catacombs with nothing but a message and ending up in a cathedral with nothing but money. Sometimes the walls can become problematic. Sometimes we hunker down behind the walls like King Zedekiah, depending on those walls to provide our protection depending on those walls to be the plan of God for our future. And then the walls collapse. Then what? The late Charles Colson, speaking of the Christian church, said the church is an organism, not an organization. It's a movement, not a monument. Compelling words, those, especially as we stand surveying the destruction that was ancient Judaism. Now, we have to come in Scripture to the New Testament, ultimately, because in the New Testament, we find a different kind, a different quality of community. When Jesus comes, there is something that binds his people together, this group called the Ecclesia, the church. But interestingly enough, it's no longer walls. It's no longer bound to a temple physically, but to a person, Jesus. It's no longer bound to a place, ancient Palestine, but bound to a globe, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples. It's no longer something that tries to keep people out. It's something that tries to invite people in. And the one defining characteristic is not its structure, but its love. That's what Jesus said. He said, by this will all people know you are my disciples. Not, friends, not because of the walls but because of love. It's a different quality, a different reality. You see, if we are bound together heart to heart, life to life, person to person, in these deep, enduring ties, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. If that's what binds us together, then even when the walls collapse, there is a community as strong as this enduring virtue called 
love. That's the community Jesus came to build. And people do notice. Oh, they do. Even the opponents of Christian faith notice. I want to read you the words of one Karl Marx. You recognize the name. You recognize the name as one who was not a proponent of Christian faith exactly. (laughs) Well, these words are taken from a letter he wrote when discussing religious faith with his friend Max Ruge. Marx writes to him about the matter of religious faith. Listen to what Karl Marx wrote. When all the political foundations of religion are wiped out, when the organization and the institutional structure of the church are destroyed, in other words, when the walls have collapsed, then, says Marx, normal religious faith, the Christian faith, would have to disappear. But it is not out of the question that the Christian faith will survive anyhow. This would mean that there is a religious reality that does not depend solely on the sociological and the institutional. And under these conditions, we would have to heed this reality, which is not in the category of traditional religion. That's Marx. May I dare, may I be so bold as to try to paraphrase and summarize what he's saying? Marx is saying, when the walls collapse on Christian faith, when the structure is done away and disappears, common sense dictates that the religion would disappear. But, he says, if it survives and endures, then we would have to admit We're dealing here with something bigger than we thought. (laughs) Pretty amazing. When the walls collapse, then what? Do you know what? If we belong to Jesus, if our community, this ecclesia, this church is characterized not by walls that keep out, but by love that pulls in, it will endure. In fact, we see that in this very story here in Jeremiah 39, because there are three people whose personal lives in the midst of all this tragedy tell us about these things. King Zedekiah, Jeremiah, and a man named Ebed-Melech. So first of all, King Zedekiah. What happened to King Zedekiah? You have to remember who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a king who depended on the walls to preserve the institutional realities of his day. He depended on those walls. This is the same king who so heartlessly persecuted Jeremiah, who so arrogantly thumbed his nose at the Babylonians. This is the same king who will take his place in the line of all the dictators of history as being a bully when he's behind the walls, and yet when the walls collapse, he's gone. 
He's the captain who flees the ship in the last lifeboat, leaving hundreds of passengers to sink to their watery graves. Listen to what happened to King Zedekiah, Jeremiah 39. We begin in verse 4. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, that's the Babylonian officials, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed toward the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. A gruesome end. Horrible beyond words. Because when you're depending on the walls, the structure, that's what will keep us. It will not end well. But then there are the two other names. Jeremiah, the prophet. Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch, who served in the palace of King Zedekiah. These two had a history. Because when Zedekiah's cronies threw Jeremiah into the cistern where he sank down into the mud and knew that because of exposure and starvation, his life would end there. It was Ebed-Melech, a foreigner, an Ethiopian, who went to King Zedekiah, who put his own neck on the line and said, we have to set him free. And thus it was that Ebed-Melech went to the cistern, called down to Jeremiah and said, I'm going to throw some rags down. Use those rags to put under your armpits to, to protect you from the pain of the rope by which we're going to pull you out. And Ebed-Melech set Jeremiah free. And God noticed. God noticed. Does that surprise you? God notices how we treat His children. Whoever they are, red or yellow, black or white, all are precious in his sight. God noticed and God remembered. Jeremiah 39, starting with verse 11. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, Nebuhashban, a chief officer, Nergal Sherezer, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. The entire Babylonian leadership protecting Jeremiah. They turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him back to his home, so he remained among his own people. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him, Go and tell Ebed-Melech the Cushite, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to fulfill my words against this city, words concerning disaster, not prosperity. At that time they will be fulfilled before your eyes." 
but I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be given into the hands of those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech, a prophet and a eunuch, an Israelite and a foreigner, one who spoke at enormous cost and one who put his neck on the line for the one who spoke. Both safe in the care and the keeping of God. Amazing. You realize that Eber Melech, the Ethiopian, you realize that if he happened to live in America in our day, we would call him African-American. It's curious, isn't it? That the realities of God's kingdom that a much later prophet will call made up of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people is present even here. Reminds me of these words from the pen of Ellen White. Jesus explained to the disciples that his kingdom is not characterized by earthly dignity and display. At the feet of Jesus, all these distinctions are forgotten. The rich and the poor, the learned and the ignorant meet together with no thought of caste or worldly preeminence. All meet as blood-bought souls, alike dependent upon one who has redeemed them to God. So what do you do when the walls collapse? Then what? If you're depending on those, those walls, you're depending on that structure, this will be our salvation. Notice Zedekiah. But if you're a part of this numberless throng of blood-bought souls bound together by the one who loved us and by the love he gives us to share. If that is your community, then when the walls collapse, you don't fear. You are in the care and the keeping of God. Whether that's Jeremiah or Ebed-Melech or Maud Aubrey or you, or me. They will know we are Christians by our 